Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> tonight's guest because I love her and she's already singing in the background, which is hilarious. Um, <laughs> Desperate Housewives, in case you don't know, is not a GPG or even an R-rated show. So if bad language, bodily function, dirty talk of any kind might upset you, this may not be the show for you, but I don't know how much of that there's going to be tonight. Desperate Housewives is brought to you by the utterly wicked one. Stop making me laugh. By the utterly wicked one herself, the amazing Dorothy Morrison, who is currently selling her limited candles. Yes. Uh, so check out uh, www.wickedwitchstudios and check out the limited edition candles because they are only on sale for a short time. And we love our Dorothy Morrison. Okay, so you all know why you're here. We are here tonight to talk to the amazing Byron Ballard, scholar, speaker, teacher, Appalachian <laughs> woman, who is, is taking us down the path that we need to go to get some understanding. And um, you're amazing. Bon so vivant. Let's, Girl about town. Witch about town. Bon vivant. Bon vivant. All right. So I have a copy here of your latest book, Roots, Branches, and Spirits, The Folkways and Witchery of Appalachia. And I just got a lesson in the difference between Appalachia and Appalachia. So there you go. Byron, tell folks the difference. Well, I will, but first I want to tell you why I was laughing and singing at the beginning of the show. Okay. So the music, your intro music is in the hall of the mountain king. And when I was a baby, the only two songs that would put me to sleep were in the hall of the mountain king and the dance macabre. Those were my songs. And my mother could put put them on on the record player. And as soon as I heard in the hall of the mountain king, I was out. So... You are really lucky I'm still awake because I've been drinking whiskey and there was in the Hall of the Mountain King. And here I am. Okay, now well, you asked me I'm, you asked me honored. a question. <laughs> I'm, I'm going try to try to, st- to stay awake. I've got a glass of water here, so it'll be good. I'm sure it'll be good. Okay. Um, okay. So what we were talking about uh, in the pre-show is um, the difference between Appalachian and Appalachian. So in this Mm -hmm. part of the region, in the Southern Highlands where I am in Western North Carolina, it's Appalachian. And we tell people it's pronounced, if you don't pronounce it this way, I'm going to throw an Appalachia. And that's how you remember how to pronounce it. But the first time I was invited, and I don't know why, let me give a shout out to my friends in Pittsburgh. I don't know why they yeah. love me, but I love them, and they love me, and we haven't seen each other in a while. 
But when I first landed yeah. in Pittsburgh to do a Pagan Pride Day, I was greeted by this group of folks who hugged my neck and said, we are Appalachian too. And I was like, here's the thing. The Appalachian region is very long and it encompasses so many different cultures. And it's Mm -hmm. not a monolith. So I want people to be respectful of the way I pronounce it and the way we pronounce it here. But in Mm -hmm. the northern parts of the Appalachian Range, they say Appalachian, and they self-identify as Appalachian people, so they have the right to call themselves that. So that, and I'm probably going to get in all kinds of trouble with my Appalachian friends, but, but it's true. I mean, they are also Appalachian people. It's not just where we are. It's a long range. It's a very long mountain range. Yeah. Go well, yep. that's interesting that that's acceptable because I find that a lot of in a lot of uh, places, you know, folks who identify similarly tend to want to stick to one pronunciation. So it's nice that there's space for folks to kind of separate themselves out and identify a little bit differently. So there's not so much confusion because I find that people get insulted when you lap when you when you um, kind of combine too much. And don't appreciate the history that is yes. the histories that are separate. Absolutely. Yeah. And so the thing that we might want to do, and that I always encourage everyone to do, is to ask questions and to try to establish relationships. And so, if mm-hmm. you meet somebody who is from the northern part of the mountain range, then you say to them, "Do you prefer the, which pronunciation? Do you prefer?" Appalachian or Appalachian, and whichever one they tell you, that's how you refer to them. It it doesn't seem like a hard thing to me, rather than me getting my back up and going, oh, God damn it, that's just not the way you pronounce it. And and how dare you? Well, how dare I? How dare any of us? We are yeah. we are a nation. We are a planet of interconnecting cultures, subcultures, many cultures, partial cultures, and so. To have a little respect for each other and to ask questions, I don't see how that hurts. And especially with words well, that you're not sure if you should use or not. I was in northern Florida, right. and there was a guy there who um, self-identified as a cracker. I'm a cracker American, is what he told me. And I said, okay, well, let me really? ask you a question. Could I use the word cracker? And he said, absolutely not. So in where he is from, he and his co he and his co crackers can refer to each other with that word, but outside of that mm-hmm. culture, that word is used pejoratively, and we all know which word I don't like used outside mm-hmm. of that culture. Mm-hmm. So, and I do you want me to stop talking so you can say something? <laughs> no, not at all. I love listening to you speak, and that's kind of the whole point of you being here. You know, I. I'm originally from a very large city and, you know, we have, there's certain subcultures that, that go along with that. And for example, I'm from New York city and we had a place called the Bowery and there was a very famous rock club there called CBGB's and CBGB's got taken away after decades of being a very popular music venue. And it was, 
basically lost to gentrification. And I noticed oh. in your book, there's a lot of referencing to cultural strip mining. And I wanted to discuss the difference between, or is there a difference between gentrification and cultural strip mining? Absolutely, there is, though one often falls hard on the heels of the other. So cultural mm-hmm. strip mining is a phrase that I have been using since the, probably the 1980s. And mm-hmm. I I understand she didn't coin it, but I learned the phrase from a traditional mountain storyteller named Marilyn McMinn McCready. And she used that phrase a lot. And what we call that now, the, the phrase we use now is cultural appropriation. But it's when you go right. into a culture and you take out the stuff you like about the culture. So you take stuff from the culture, but you have no respect for the culture and you give nothing back to the culture. So you leave the culture mm-hmm. bereft, but you have the pieces that you value and then you just claim them. So that's mm-hmm. what cultural strip mining yeah. is. That is so boy, I sure I sure do hate those hillbillies, but my oh my, I love some bluegrass music. That's cultural strip mining. That's so weird. I <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, it's I can, and I understand that, and I can relate to it in the sense of, you know, the folks that are like into punk music, but the Bowery was too dirty for them to hang out and to listen exactly. to it. So it's exactly yeah. the same thing. And if you, there was a group until fairly recently called the Carolina Chocolate Drops, and they looked back into the racist history of some of some African American music. And they went, you know, some of this is really damn good music, so we're going to reclaim it. And they're all brilliant musicians, and you could hear in their voices, in the way they interpreted this music, you could hear how important the pain and the grief of that old culture was to them. So they presented this thing not as, oh, boy, listen, listen to these fiddles. Listen to this banjo. It was like, this is the blood, sweat, and tears of my ancestors. And on mm-hmm. all respect, all respect, all respect. And then they would just, then they created this incredible music. And that's, that's how you want people to approach cultures. Because I'm not saying you should, you should stick to your own people and stick to your own culture. Because, God, what's the fun in that? We'd all starve. But <laughs> True. when you take, when you love something about a culture, honor the culture that it comes from. Honor them. Just say this, mm-hmm. man, I love collard greens with hog gel more than anything in the world. I could eat that every damn day with some cornbread. And and I live in, oh gosh, I, I live in Montana. And this stuff comes mm-hmm. from my ancestors who are part of the Appalachian diaspora. And I want to just say this is good eating and this is where it came from. And and God love them for making sure I could eat this yummy stuff. It's all about love and respect, and I don't see why that's so hard. But again and again, we see people take, I mean, not obviously not just out of the Appalachian culture, but we see people take stuff, just reach into a culture and grab something out because they find it cool or sexy yeah. or whatever they find it, and then it's theirs with no reference back. 
Okay, I think the reference now. is where the honor, am, am I correct in the refer? at least the reference shows honor to where it came from. Absolutely. And you are, you are not mocking whatever the culture is, but saying, I got the good thing out of it. This is the only good thing in that culture, and I have it. It's mine now. Interesting. Interesting. Because mm-hmm. I, I, have a, I have a story of, of my friend Sonny who was from South Carolina, and this is when I lived in New York. When, when I was in my early 20s, I met a gentleman who cooked the most amazing fried chitlins that anybody had ever had and the best potato salad in the world. And Sonny, um, whose family was originally from South Carolina, um, would make it for me and tell me about how his grandfather would make it for him. And, you know, he was tickled to death that he got this little New York girl to eat chitlins. And, and, you know, he was always so kind to me and, and always looked after me. And we were just great friends. He and his wife and I were very close, and, and, you know, they'd invite me over on a Sunday afternoon, and he'd tell me stories about going to visit, you know, his grandfather and his grandmother, and, and he'd feed me this amazing, amazing food. And I miss him. I miss the food, but I miss him more, and I miss his stories, and I miss his family stuff, all of that. He was just a great person who really gave of himself and, and shared his culture with me. So I guess that's that's the reverence. That's the, you know, remember where it came from. You didn't just come upon it by yourself. Remember the people who brought it to you. Exactly. Remember to dance with them, with them you come with, or whatever that phrase is. But the, but the step after that is the interesting step. So he, he obviously mm-hmm. loved his grandma. She fed him well. He made that same food, gave it to you. Now, the next step would be if you stood with him in the kitchen and said, I'm going to learn how to make this. And then you learned how to make this delicious dish so that now Mm -hmm. when you no longer know Sonny, you would present this dish to your guests and you would tell the story of Sonny and his grandmother. So you start to link in through your culture, you link into his culture. And that's how we start to share things in a way that feels wholesome and feels legitimate and feels like you're starting to really link cultures rather than just taking things you like. Interesting. And that's what you would do. I know you. That's exactly what you you would have done. If he had allowed me to, yes, but he was very secretive about his cooking skills and would not allow me in the kitchen. As a matter of fact, he would park me in front of the barbecue and tell me to just stay there. And he was, he was very quiet about his magical doings in the kitchen. He's like, he's like, you don't want to see this and I don't want you in the kitchen right now. And he would specifically tell me I was not allowed in the kitchen. And I don't know if it was because he was afraid that I would like, steal the recipe, which I would never have done, or that he was concerned that I would be offended by the smell of cleaning chitlins. I mean, I'm not sure because he would never really tell me, but he was so proud and his pride in it was, was everything, Mm. you know? So I just, I just loved him as a person and everything he brought to the table, which was a lot more than food you know, and yeah. his wife yeah. would just laugh at his stories, and she'd say, Sonny, stop telling her about all these things about your family. She doesn't care about any of that. And I'm like, no, I really want to hear it, because I have a very limited 
culture. My fam- I come from a, a world of secretive people who don't like to talk about anything, which I find very strange, too. I'm sure I'm not well, the only but, person who has that. Yeah, but are your people Eastern European? Yes. Yeah. So... <laughs> There is, there are, there's layer after layer and layer after layer of tragedy and grief. And there are so many yeah. people in those that talk about interlocking cultures, so many people in those cultures that just were like, no, uh, nope, not ta- we're not talking about that. We're n- I'm not dredging up the past because the past was yeah. so horrific. True, but don't you think that it's important to even pass on tragedy so it doesn't get repeated? I do. Academically, I think that's that's absolutely important. But if you're a little old woman who has survived pogroms or the mm-hmm. Holocaust mm-hmm. or what, mm-hmm. or Srebrenica or whatever thing you've survived, that's, that's up to you how you're going to deal with that trauma. And maybe the way you deal with that trauma is you just forget it. You bury it as deeply as you can bury it, and you never you never bring it up again. I mean... I can see how that there is appeal to that. I mean, there were things that happened in my life, in my young life, that I conveniently put away for decades, and yeah. then I felt like I was yeah. in a safe place to to take them out. Yeah, sometimes it doesn't come out that way. Sometimes, like a memory will suddenly hit, and it's like all of a the sudden, these things that you've been burying for so long just come rushing to the fore. And it's almost like a punch to the stomach. And, you know, sometimes these memories, these horrific memories come back and it's, it's just incredibly painful. And the things you realize you have walled off in your own mind is, it's amazing Mm -hmm. what the mind can do to protect you. Um, I've had several instances of that actually. Yeah. And, and for me it was, I knew some things had happened but I kind of shrugged yeah. them off like, oh, yeah, man, that was the hell of a summer. Oh, God, how awful was that? But the but as soon as the hook got me or as soon as the memory hooked me, then I kept running. Yeah. Then un, unasked for other details would come in like, oh, my God, not that. That did not happen. Yeah, that happened. And so, yeah, oh, time, time and space. Ugh. We live yeah. in the past, we live in the future, we live in the present all at once. It's creepy. <laughs> it's kind of creepy. Um, it is kind of creepy. But it is kind of creepy. So I, I've got to ask, you know, because you do talk a lot about what goes on in the Appalachians and a lot of the, you know, folks coming in who don't appreciate the land and kind of buying things up. How do you deal with that? I mean, is there any chance to educate people when they decide that they want to come and live in a beautiful town without really knowing anything about it, without having respect for the people that actually put the town together? Okay, first I'm going to put on my kind hat. This is my little soft bonnet. It doesn't doesn't poke me anywhere. And there are people who have come into this region, and you would not know Mm -hmm. they they were not eighth generation Appalachian because they came in and they and they settled in 
and they love the land and they got to know their neighbors and now they're just part of the group. There's some of those. The mm-hmm. larger group of people who come here, who come here specifically to where I am, they are coming by right. second and third and fourth homes and holiday homes yeah. and places where they can come for two weeks at whatever time of year they yeah. come. And they are in a community, but they're not of the community. So they don't really contribute mm-hmm. anything to a community. But by God, they are noisy enough about the stuff they don't like in a community. And an example I will give you is that a, re- a close, close friend of mine, she and her husband bought a horse farm. Or they bought a farm to make a horse farm. And she's doing mm-hmm. art classes. It's like art and horses together. She's really an amazing woman. They, they're... The the land above them, on the ridge above them, um, has a beautiful home, a beautiful expensive home that's owned by somebody not from here. And they Mm -hmm. were lucky, my friend was lucky, to score a new, uh, no, a used um, horse trailer. And it was not in great shape, Mm -hmm. and they were going to paint it and probably make it purple with pretty flowers or whatever, I don't know. But they did that, and their neighbor came down almost immediately to say, have I done something to make you angry? And they were like, not that we know of. Why? Well, why would you park this thing in my view where I have to see it? And they were like, well, we parked it here because this is the place it's going to live because it's the horse trailer for our horse farm. I don't understand what your problem is. Well, I mean, it's just so ugly. Why would you do that? So we deal with that a lot here. We deal with people coming into the area and renaming things. Like the Mm. the area that I live in is an old mill village. And a Florida developer came in and decided he wasn't, they weren't going to call it what has traditionally been called. He's going to call it this way. He's going to call it this thing while he develops these little plots of land. And there's just, there's so much of that. And what we are seeing now is property values here. We just got our property revaluations, all of us. And they're horrific. Forty percent, fifty percent, hundred percent. And that the political will of our elected officials does not help us because that's not where their will goes. Because all they want to do is see us as a tourist attraction. So more hotels, more people moving in yeah. part of the year, all of that. Yeah. Mhm. So I took off my wow. kind hat part of the way through. But I still didn't say, these fucking people are making me nuts. Because they are the people who, when I talk like this and don't have my normal natural accent, they will go, oh, the people yeah. down here are so backwards. I just know they're inbred, and I just know they haven't gone to school. And I'm always surprised, are you, when you see them with shoes? Yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, I don't understand where that comes from. I mean, I do understand where that – I shouldn't say that. I do understand where that, where that comes from, and it's so insulting, you know, and it's – and I can only relate to it through my own experiences. Part of my family comes from a place called Middle Village in New York, and Middle Village right now is – oh, yes, it's, you know, millions of dollars for a home and, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And 
but it didn't start off that way. It was where the poor people were. You know what I mean? It's where my Mm -hmm. people come from. And, you know, my people didn't have money, but they were really proud of the fact that they escaped certain things and that they were able Mm -hmm. to come to this country and, and start a new life. So only in my limited ability am I able to relate, but I know how insulted I am when, you know, people of a certain generation ask me where my people are from and I tell them where they're from and I get the look of like somebody just opened a package of Limburger cheese. You know what I mean? So I kind <laughs> of, I, I get it in that respect, yeah. obviously not to the extent that you're living it because you're living it like all the time because these people are coming in and just buying up pieces of, of living forest and land and basically pissing on your property. And I know it's, I, I understand that economics need development to a certain extent. So how do you control that though? I mean, Obviously, an influx of money has to come from somewhere. I don't know what your tax structure is. What's it like? I mean, is there enough to sustain it without having the, I hate to use the term carpetbagger, but. Well, that's exactly what they are. That's a good term to use. Yeah, that's exactly what we're talking about. Well, you have to have, um, you have to have your elected officials and the people who are the non-elected people who run a city because they're always this. They're the people who sit on the city council or the commissioners or whatever. And then there are the the wealthy and powerful people that actually make all the decisions. So those mm-hmm. people have to care about communities enough to do something about that. Let's just be honest. We live in a in a system of capitalism that is unfettered in any real way. Yeah. So yeah. given that as the baseline, there are some mm-hmm. things you can do, but you have to have the political will to do it. And the powerful people in your community have to be behind it. And if they're not, there is not very much that the average citizen can do. Wow. So basically, unless you are able to elect people to represent you who will actually represent you, you're kind of mm-hmm. between a rock and a hard place. Well, what's happening to us is what happened in places like Jackson Hole um, mm-hmm. and lots and lots of places that are beautiful and people with yeah. lots of money come from outside and they buy it up. Is that the, the people who've, who have been in an area for many generations can no longer afford to live in the area. And so they move away. That's so you huge. lose that piece of yeah. the culture. But these people don't care about the culture for the most part. They just care they want to live in a place where they are in a beautiful bowl of mountains and they can look all around and it's just, you know, it's beautiful and the autumn colors are amazing. And they don't care about the rest of it. And if your entire um, economic base is based on tourism, then, you know, that's not a high-paying industry. No, it's not. So you're basically ruining any kind of job infrastructure for the folks who currently live there who are from there. And you're basically catering to the people that 
aren't from the land, don't appreciate the land, and just managed to make enough money to buy up the land. And yeah, now and it's almost I'm not even going to say I'm not going to say they don't appreciate the land because they obviously came here for the land because it is so beautiful. Also the beer because we are the fucking beer capital of the country. You are the beer fact, capital, I'm gonna, but when I say appreciate, yep. I'm talking about the history. The history is what's oh, no. being lost. Well, are you living in America like I am? Because not a lot of people in America give a shit about history. Let's just be clear. Yeah, but you run really beautifully don't. and you make people care about it. No, no, but well, see, I care about it when I read when I read something like your writing. I care about it because you make me care about it. And that is a beautiful, amazing talent that you can write something that says, here, look at this. And you actually do want to care because of the way you write. You know, that's why books are so important because books will – explain to you why you should care about things, especially this book. This book is amazing. Thank you, and thanks for all those nice words. That was really kind. Well, I love, I mean, obviously I love this area. My family's been here on every side of it for a long, long, long time. The most recent people in my family to the area came at the Civil War, and before that, everybody else was already here. Yeah. Wow. So you're so ingrained in it. I mean, you are tied, tied, tied to this land. It must be heartbreaking every time you hear somebody putting something up or tearing something down near you. I know you've experienced that. I know you've had people, like, (laughs) park in places that they didn't belong. You couldn't even get out of your own driveway. Oh, yeah. I have had that happen more than once, actually. But... Do you know what what is one of the hardest things? And this is weird. It's going to sound very weird. I grew up in the western part of the county, and there were lots of pastures. And people would run a small dairy herd or they would run a small herd of, uh, you know, of food beef. So there were lots and lots of multi-acre pastures. And that, I think, is the hardest thing to lose. When I see that somebody has bought up, oh, man, Johnson's Johnson's farm has been bought up. Oh, look, they're putting in whatever they're putting in, a gated community or condos or townhouses or, you know, whatever the developers decided is going to sell. Um, you know, yeah. there, there are, there are million-dollar townhouses happening along a strip of road. Um, yeah. It's just appalling to think about it. You know, so I, I used don't, to I live don't know in. What you do. A, a, yeah, I don't either. I mean, I used to live in a place in the country called Maiden in Catawba County, and mm-hmm. there's beautiful farms there. And any time a farm goes away, not only do you realize that a family has lost their history, you've also lost a really valuable food source. And as yes you know, things become more poisonous. Um, I think when you lose an organic farm or a farm that you could actually go up and meet the critter before it is dispatched to your table, um, 
that was a huge thing for me being a city kid and and living in a place like when I lived in Western Maryland where when I where I actually did live on a farm and I learned how to butcher a cow in the middle of the night because it's a long story but anyway um and I think <laughs> Sounds like a long I learned so it was it was a it was just a crazy story but the fact is is that the steer kept jumping the fence and my mentor tried to lead him back with the truck and the steer of course ripped the mirror off and this cat, he had jumped so many times that uh, my mentor went and got his shotgun and said, boom. And <laughs> well, guess what? We're going to go butcher. Now. You'll be delicious. Buddy. I, you're going to be delicious because we could not keep you on our side of the fence. Um, so yeah, there I am at one o'clock in the morning with a flashlight between my teeth and a knife being instructed on what mm. I'm supposed to cut and how, uh, yeah. I apologize to any of my friends who find that offensive, but I did do a disclaimer at the beginning of the show. So sorry. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's things you learn out of necessity, you know, feeding chickens and looking for this and looking for that and, you know, plant this and it's time to harvest that. I did learn mm-hmm. quite a bit. Um, but yeah, when you lose the ability to like get food that you know where it's coming from, I find yeah. for some reason that is deeply disturbing. And it should be. I think farms <laughs> are, it, and yeah, it, it, is, it should be is right. So I, I think you know, from that kind of standpoint, I, I'm relating to what you're saying. I'm not from a place that's rich in culture like you are. I'm I'm from a place that basically everybody got slapped together because that's the only place there was for everyone to go. Um, and a lot, mm-hmm. of, you know, like you said earlier, a lot of people wanted to forget where they came from, and a lot of them did. So yeah. I have very few yeah. stories about my culture to pass along because no one wanted to talk. So I, I'm always fascinated when someone wants to share their history because I live vicariously through you. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's <laughs> like I get to enjoy. Well, I mean, even though a lot of it's painful, as I'm sure it is for a lot of folks, you know, belonging somewhere, belonging to someone is a pretty big deal. Belonging to a place, knowing where you're from, knowing what that means, yeah. knowing what your what your place is as far as what it brought to the nation, how it took care of people. You know, I mean, you're co-founder of Mother Grove, and I know your work never ends with that. I know you're feeding people. I know you have a pantry that you set up. You look after your neighbors. I mean, that's a beautiful we thing. Do. People don't. And let me just, people let don't me just give it. a shout-out about that. Is that we always Please. can take non-perishable food items at Mother Grove Goddess Temple's pantry, and you can drop those off at Raven and Crone on Merriman Avenue. Thanks. Yes, you can. We love protein. No, of course. <laughs> we, <yeah. laughs> we love our protein. Yeah, but, uh, um, and I don't really do any of that. I don't do very much of that. I do the shout out that we need food, but we have a wonderful team of people that. Get it out there. They get get those bellies filled up. It's really good. We're looking now at expanding the pantry and figuring out how we do it in a more effective way and a more efficient way. So we'll sure. be hearing more about that in times in times to come. 
Yeah, but I I also want to come down on the other side of where we are because my book before this book before Roots Branches and Spirits was a book that came out in uh, in eighteen called Earthworks Ceremonies and Power mm-hmm. Time, and we are seeing transitions happening in all sorts of places. So when um, when a family loses the family farm that maybe their families had since the early 20th century and now the last grandparent has died and they have to they have to do something with the land because they all live in Atlanta now every time that happens there there is also this 20 20 something couple and all they want to do is be organic farmers or they want to have bees or they want to have an orchard or whatever so when we can put those two together and figure out how to make that work financially, then yes. it's a win-win situation. And when we can encourage people who have a calling to work the land and to be on the land and to help them, again, help them financially to figure out how to do that, because land is so valuable. I mean, even if it mm-hmm. isn't, like here, it is literally valuable. It's it's. You pay a lot of money for it, but it's valuable no matter where it is. Land is valuable. Right. And when you can figure out how it is, you encourage that that person who's going to have the um, who's going to raise dairy goats and make cheese. And you can not only encourage them by helping them get their product out and helping them afford to be on the land and whatever, and to help them if they Mm -hmm. need help with marketing. But how you bring to bear all those things. Because that's an important part of your community. That's where you go when you right. want cheese. And, and this is where you go when you want butter. And this is where you go for your vegetables. And this is where you go when Raina has butchered a steer in the middle of the night because it knocked off a side <laughs> window, a side mirror. That's where you go over there. Because we have a couple of wonderful places in the area here where, um, I mean, Warren Wilson College has it. And then the... Hickory Nut Gap Farm has wonderful uh, ethically raised and gently slaughtered meats available. Yeah. So you can have, I mean, it can happen, but it, but there has to be, if you'll excuse me, there has to be a market for it. So you have to figure out how to connect the eaters with the growers. And you have to figure right. out how how you encourage people to instead of putting million-dollar condos on those 30 yeah. acres, you're going to run a head of dairy goats, and you're going to put in a you're going to put in a dairy barn, and you're going to do all yeah. that stuff. So it's just a matter of prioritizing those things that humans actually need. Nobody needs a third home. Nobody. They may want one, but they don't need yeah. one. I I barely know anyone who needs more than one at all. Um, <laughs> I, I I don't know why certain things become the ambition. You know, if you're if you live somewhere and you need to get away, you know, most folks just go on a a short term vacation. Yeah. Why would you, I mean, so you really have no home because you're living, you're trying to live in two places at once. It just doesn't seem 
to make a lot of sense when you're trying to put down roots somewhere. And like you were saying, I guess that's not important to folks anymore. And that's a shame because and it's I, very and hard it's not to, that it's not important to, to all folks because, oh, yeah, 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 definitely. But I also don't want to, I don't want to be called out as a big old hypocrite here because I own two homes. I have the house that I live with live in in town and then I inherited mm-hmm. what we call the farm I inherited um, another piece of property in South Asheville and that's the farm and I'm, I'm putting that into production in- as inheriting a, farm. a farm, yeah. farm is not the same thing as having what could be looked at as two vacation homes you're talking about the difference between work <laughs> and inheriting and buying a couple of pleasure palaces. I'm not quite seeing a farm as a pleasure palace. Please excuse no, me. Oh, if dear I God. <laughs> well, we think we got the groundhog out of the basement at the farm, at the farmhouse, but uh, yeah, it's no, it's not easy. And right now, my buddy Alicia no, is holed up there because she's got she's got the Rona, so she's quarantined oh, at the farm, and I can't. And I can't go and farm, and I'm just I'm feeling like it's this plague plague house. And when she finally does get to move out, I'm gonna be like opening all the windows, and I'm gonna go in there in a hazmat suit. I'm like, oh my god, I've got to clean this house. Crazy. Yeah, but the fact that you've actually been able to let your friends stay in a place to be isolated is really very generous, because I would be concerned about the Rona. But then again. I've been, you know, I don't know, the people I work with, they think they have it, they don't have it, they're not sure if they had it, nobody seems to know anything. Wear your mask, please. Please wear your mask. Please please care about people enough to try. Everybody, yeah. I finally started double masking because of these new Mm -hmm. mutations. Mm -hmm. I just thought I'm just going to do it now. I really can't breathe when I go out, but it's okay. I know. But I'm going to the Rona a little longer. Well, I'm trying to, you know, because already I'm huffing and puffing, running up the stairs with a mask. I probably need one of those plastic things. You know, they sell those like little face guards that you put in your mask so the mask isn't oh. directly being sucked up by your nose. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Double masking is a good idea. I guess the more layers, the better the protection is. What can I tell you? Yeah, and, you know, and again, how entrepreneurial have uh, people that I know been? I mean, I've got masks that my good friend Amy Amy Mazingo made me a bunch of masks. um, And she made a ton of masks that are going maybe to the Navajo Reservation. I know they're going west. And periodically, I yeah. shoot her some money to buy some more elastic. Um, but she made me some masks. Um, my daughter got me a mask that has Totoro on it. And she got me a mask that has a picture of a velociraptor on it. And it says, clever girl. <laughs> so I got, I got the cool mask. And then my friend Krista sent me a mask with a Ouija board on it. And I love to wear the Ouija board mask in a place where somebody is likely to challenge me. But he's like, listen, Mona, right. can you see this mask on my face? Let me tell you what's behind this mask is a big old witch. So if I was you, you I go. would not bug me. 
Thank you. I walk around like that all the time. I'm like 5'3", you know me. And I just walk around like, are you going to fucking challenge me on that? Are you? Okay, let's do it. Seriously. Come on. She's a tiny, tiny, petite woman. And uh, Uh, and a monster. (laughs) I'm afraid of you, so it's okay. Um, Because I'm smart. (laughs) I was telling somebody this story of of a guy several years ago who was mocking my name. And he's like, well, where are you going there? And that's a, that's a boy's name. Like, well, did you used to be a boy? And I bowed up on him and said, listen, that's my granddaddy's name? You got a problem with my name? Because you know, you step outside with me. Come on, come on. Don't think I won't grind your ass into the ground, because I will. Are you insulting my granddaddy? I went full Appalachian on his ass. And he just backed up like, uh, no, ma'am. No, ma'am. Huh. All right. Yeah. Well, have a nice day. Yeah. Back oh, away yeah, slowly because this is a dangerous woman. I but I want to ask you a question. Been known to be dangerous, I think. Yes, ma'am. Please do. I'm going to stir my pinto beans while you ask. Please mm-hmm. do. Um what is the biggest min- misconception that people have about folks from Appalachia? <sighs> that we're stupid, that we're inbred, that we have bad teeth, uh, that we, well, you know, this is what I say all the time about it, is that there, is a, there are a lot of stereotypes, and some of them are stereotypes of the noble, savage variety, that we are all... Mm-hmm. We're far away in the fastnesses of the mountains where we speak a kind of a pure Elizabethan tone and we sing murder ballads and we play banjos and fiddles that our great-great-grandpappy made by hand from cigar boxes and we have a kind of a wonderful, sad nobility about us. So there's that. And the other Uh thing is deliverance. So we are either no-tooth, barefoot, inbred, redneck, whatevers, or we're these kind of noble uh, left-behinds from a faraway past that's romantic and beautiful. And we are all the stuff in between. And we are not all white. And we are not all brown. And we are not all uneducated and we are all not not all violent it's it is not a monolith Appalachia is not a monolith not any part of it is a monolith but certainly certainly the entire range is not a monolith there are lots of people from lots of different areas yeah I'm getting off my soapbox it was good though thanks for letting me be out there good well I think it's important to talk about it I, I you know we could sit here and pretend it doesn't happen, but it does happen. You know, I recently watched, and I shouldn't say the word, it's a movie. Elegy is part of the it's name It's the second the word, elegy. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, and I was, I, and I, I got it. I'm like, this is, I, I would not be happy about it. Here's the thing. There's so many things about that, and I am so happy to address hillbilly elegy. Please. Uh, and I've talked Please. about it a lot since since my book came out. 
people yeah. are asking me about that book all the time and the movie. Most people mm-hmm. have seen the movie rather than reading the book. The thing about mm-hmm. <laughs> about his take on all of that, he's not mm-hmm. he's not technically Appalachian anymore. I mean, he's a Harvard grad and he's a he's a uh, hedge fund manager and you know he's he's a he's a lot of cool stuff. And I'm not saying Appalachia doesn't have those people because they do, because we do. Right. But he right. looks back as on his culture as something that he's ashamed of. And how good mm-hmm. for me that I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and I got out of that because those people are lazy and ignorant and whatever. So he he got to emphasize once again the worst stereotypes of what Appalachian people are. Mm-hmm. The funny thing I- or the ironic thing about it is that some of the stories that he tells in the book, and I refuse to see the movie, so I don't know if it's in the movie, but he had a, when he was a kid, his uncle Junior used to chase him around the yard and say if he caught him, he was going to cut his ear off with a fishing knife. And, oh, oh, my God, the author was so horrified. Oh, it was so terrible. It was so terrible. Well, I mean, we do play a little rough in Appalachia sometimes. I'm not going to lie to you. But all of us had an uncle Junior who did stuff like that. Yeah. And you just ran and ran and ran. And then you fell down the grass, and then Uncle Junior ran past you, and he went to get a beer or some sweet tea or whatever. And then the other story that just broke my heart when I read it is I think he's talking about his grandmother, but it might be his great-grandmother. And she comes out of the house, and somebody's trying to steal their cow. And I'm assuming this is in the Depression, roughly. And she goes back in the house Mm -hmm. and gets the gun. And she's 12 years old. So she shoots wow. at one of the guys, and he gets in the truck and goes away, and she is leveling down on the second guy when her, I think her brothers come and go, oh, my God, no, don't shoot him, don't shoot him, you're going to get, you know, all this stuff. Well, right. the author of that book talks about, well, see how crazy my family is? That's just crazy. Who did? This was a 12-year-old child, and this was probably mm-hmm. the only thing of any value that the family had. There was nobody around protecting it. And so it was up to her as a 12-year-old child to make sure that the cow didn't get stolen. That feels brave to me. It feels courageous and noble Mm -hmm. and smart and all of that. But he was able to twist that around. See how crazy my family is? Wasn't I lucky to escape from all that? So most of the people I know in Appalachia have not got any time for him or for anything he wants to write about or talk about. Because for all those reasons. Well, here's the thing, Byron, and I'm from the city, and when I was five years old, I was promised to a 35-year-old man, and my father tried to sell me to his friends. So, yeah, but yeah, that's not I'm a so indictment, nor should it, no, Dubby, uh, nor should it be on the entire city of New York. So why is it that one guy's horrible experiences or his family's sad experiences have to color an entire culture. I don't understand why we give certain people that much power or how people get that power. It's not even that we give them that much power because my story is horrific, but it, but people will not judge all of New York City because of it. So why is it that that this guy who has a horrible story is able to color and paint an entire um, culture and, and people because of 
his sad experiences? How do we break that? Well, he can do it because everybody wants to think the worst of Appalachia. And that, that is something we do not have time to talk about tonight. Okay. But it okay. has been so easy for so long because we are mm-hmm. the white culture that didn't succeed. So it's easy for people. I mean, even the South doesn't like Appalachian people. A lot of us are part of the South. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting and complicated story. Part of it is the yeah. people who settled here, the white people who settled here, obviously lots of other people settled here too. Yeah. But part of it sure. is that. I mean, it's a, it's a long, involved, interesting saga about how... Um, how we were trivialized and also made into a kind of an icon of what you don't want to be mm-hmm. ever. And it served, wow. it served the, uh, the rest of the culture, served the over culture to have a group of people that they can be better than. Everybody's better than we are. Everybody. More successful, healthier, yeah. happier, all that. Smarter, less inbred, got shoes, everything. <laughs> Wow, that's just—I have to tell you, really the editor horrible. for this book. Uh, when I first turned in the first manuscript, the editor said, "Okay, look, I know you're pissed off about this. <laughs> I know you were talking to the Appalachian stereotypes, but we don't have to cut this section down by half because, yeah, you said it. It's okay, you said it. It's very clear. We don't need all of that. Let's move on." <laughs> So it's interesting when you said the book felt very emotional to you. I yeah, I guess it is. Huh. Yeah. Well, it's my love story. It's my love story to the region. It it is, and it it reads that way. And you know, I know I'm not smart enough to have answers on how to fix it, but I do love this conversation and I hope I can get you to come back on in the not too distant future to to maybe Talk to me about it for an hour and and girl, you just let me know when you want me. I would love that. that would and be, I will say that, that the book great. I'm working on now, the book I'm working on now, is called mm-hmm. "The Ragged Wound: Tending the Soul of Appalachia," and it's uh, and it's oh. digging into all those things from oxycontin yeah. to meth to extraction industries. Mm-hmm. I'm really interviewing some uh, some really amazing Appalachian people, and we're gonna we're gonna have some answers. Well, that, you know, I, and I would love to have that conversation because, yeah, we are, we are somewhat short on time. And, you know, this book oh my is gosh. really, yeah, we've almost, we've almost done an entire hour. Um, yeah. So you are so I, easy I really to talk to, to. Oh, thank you. And you're wonderful. And this book is really, it's a beautiful book. It is heartfelt. It has, mm. and it's not... But lest anybody think it's just a, you know, this is what happened to us and why. There's there's beautiful other beautiful stuff in here about um, herbs and story, you know, hate stories, which I thought were really neat. Herb lore. Oh, good. I mean, there's all kinds of magic. There's there's magic in here. There there's spells in here. There's there's all kinds of stuff. It, it's not just um, a love story. It's a love story with 
practical stuff in it that is very mm. useful. But it is a love story because it's it's oh. a beautiful telling of what happens when people with money just want to come in and, and not pay attention to what's around them and not appreciate history. Because history is really important. There's a reason why people are where they are. There's a reason why people live the way they live and believe the way they believe. And I think it's important to get as much culture as you can before you die, which is why I try to read stuff like this so I can appreciate more than my square <laughs> inch of space in this world. Um, Absolutely. And I love and you I, to death. And I, I, love I think too. this book and is I wanna, wonderful. Please do. Thank you. And I, I want to warn, warn everybody that the book um, is – out of stock right now. It's sold out by Oops. its release date. So I want right. you to order it. It's like Doritos. The publisher is making more. But if you order it right now, it may take a little a little while to get to you. But be patient. I I like to think it's worth it. The publisher was very surprised. We're like, what? What do you mean? Well, uh, it's, so it's you and I, it let's really talk again. Fun. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you so thanks much. Thanks for having me I on really tonight. I'm you sorry? let me know when you want me again. Thanks for having me on. Tonight. I will. You let me know when you I want will. me again. I certainly will. I will. I will. I will email you or message you rather shortly, and we will come up with another date. The book is perfect. Ruth's Branches and spirits: the folkways and witchery of Appalachia. My guest was the incredible Byron Ballard. Byron, thank you again. Mm, thank you. Thank you so much. Bye, y'all. All right. Bye, everybody. Have a wonderful night. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.